I'm Andre. And I'm Richard. And this is Rugby Deconstructed. Evening, Richard. Welcome back to the stoop. Uh, thanks, Andre. Thanks for having me again. Laka. Tell me, uh, here you've got a new family member. Yeah, yeah. Six weeks old. It's got all four paws, furry tail. Oh, a little puppy. Yeah. That's another great. Another addition. Nice, nice. And her name? Uh, Ava. Ava. A little oh, girl right. puppy. Little girl to go yeah. with the, to, to partner Snoopy. Oh, of course. So it's got two little troublemakers at home now. Okay. Yeah. And on your side, uh, wife's birthday? Yes. Did you uh, yeah, I, too, I did, so, did my due diligence this morning. And um, got the got the green card signed off so that I can do the pod this evening. Fantastic! So we both got permission to go ahead. Yeah, perfect. Right. Uh, so the the first thing I want to I just want to give out uh, give a shout out to uh, the use it and lose it crowd. On Monday night they gave me an invite and a shout out to to come and chat some rugby on the past weekend's uh, sport. It was quite enjoyable, and uh, you can find them on YouTube, and they've got a Twitter handle. Um, so yeah, give them a go and give them a give your give them your support when you when you got a chance. Perfect. So Richard, this past weekend we had some extremely entertaining and interesting news come out of the north. Do you want to just in, highlight uh, highlight what was uh, that what, what came uh, came from the north? Yeah, so the Daily Mail from the UK uh, broke a story on Saturday morning about uh, plans and talks being put in place for the Springboks to join the Six Nations after the 2023 Rugby World Cup. Um, Now, I must say, when I heard it the first time, or when I saw the article came out, it was during the Chiefs Crusaders game. And I looked at this, hang on, why would South Africa want to leave this product? And then following the Chiefs Crusaders game, the Blues and Waratahs came on, and I was like, okay, that's exactly why we want to leave. <laughs> fair, so. fair, fair enough, fair enough. All right, so trying to stick to the, the aim of the pod, we're going to be creating a hypothetical period now. It's five years down the line. South Africa is hypothetically joining the, an expanded Six Nations and is now called Seven Nations. And tonight we're going to look at pros and cons as to why we should and shouldn't, why we should or shouldn't join uh, the North and leaving the South. Um, I just want to highlight, I've got an inherent bias. I think it's a great idea. It's a great concept that should be entertained by the governing bodies and they should get around the table and get around with the broadcasting uh, deals because I think it, can benefit not just South Africa, but Australia, New Zealand, England, and all the other home unions, and France. So basically all the tier one nations, in my opinion, in my hypothetical world right now, I think it's a win-win situation for everybody. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I know there's been a lot of uh, reports coming out of New Zealand and, in, and the Northern Hemisphere that's uh, dismissing this idea of the bat. Um, I was, before I get started, I think I want to give three reasons why I think um, this idea cannot be dismissed immediately, and it's it might be lingering around for a few more years. Um, firstly, was uh, SA Rugby's reaction to it. 
So over the last weekend, we had two big stories that broke um, on in the news cycle for SA Rugby. The first one was the one on Saturday morning of South Africa leaving Super Rugby, uh, leaving the Rugby Championship and joining the Six Nations. The second one the following day was um, news of Rassi leaving South Africa at the end of 2021 and and joining um, and joining the English. Now. For me, Mark Alexander's reaction to both stories uh, actually said a lot. I mean, when questioned about the move to the Six Nations, he said that there's been some talks in the background, nothing's been set in stone, kept, was quite cool, calm and collected about it. And compare that to the way the Rassi story was handled, where there were denials immediately from all sides and uh, Twitter accounts being opened just to, to, to put a, a nation at ease. It says that why was, if there's no truth behind it, why was the one story treated so differently to the other? Um, secondly, for me, was New Zealand's rugby's reaction to this. And um, I feel like New Zealand rugby has come out and almost acted as a spokesperson for South Africa in this matter. And um, if you look at uh, what they, they said is that they came out and said that in um, end of Jan, a new agreement was signed up until 2025. But if you go back to Jan and look at the news cycle in New Zealand and Australia rugby-wise, the talk was about them ditching South Africa and moving on towards Asia um, in the next cycle. So why would we go and sign an agreement if the, a news cycle is saying that we are being ditched for that same, uh, in that same partnership? So there something really didn't add up for me in terms of was there agreement signed? Was there not? Is it just a way of, of um, pouring cold water over the fire? And then uh, thirdly for me was the home nation's reaction. So I mean, okay, the home nations have come out strongly uh, denying it and th players' associations threatening um, action against this move. But for me, I think they, we must just give them time to get used to the idea. I mean, historically, and this is something we discussed last week as well. So firstly, if you look at their reactions to changes in the past, I mean, in 1985, they were still uh, adamant of a Rugby World Cup not going ahead and not taking place at all. I mean, I th up until the, the final vote, where I think it was Wales and Ireland that swung the vote at the end, the it, it was still 50-50 if a World Cup was going to happen or not, uh, due to the home nation's resistance on that. And um, furthermore, in as early as Jan, uh, January 1995, they were still hell-bent on keeping the game amateur. It was only once Ross Turnbull and Kerry Packer started making noises of a, a breakaway series or a rebel series and the formation of Zanzar as a consequence of that, that uh, IRB at that stage, World Rugby now, actually um, declared the game open in August of 1995. And... At even then, the six the home nations were caught with their pants down in terms of they weren't prepared for professionalism. So, for me, I think it's a thing of they like their traditions, and this is something that was evident on Twitter in the week with all the discussions that they love the traditions. Um, it, it's going to take time for them to warm up to new ideas. So let's 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 just uh, ease them into this whole situation. I hear what you're saying. I think that there's a critical factor here that we need to to consider the home the home unions zanzar saru 
these governing bodies tend to work in secrecy. In, for many years now, we've around the fire when we we discuss how we can improve South African rugby or any rugby. The people in power who control the game do it in in a almost like a secret society. So what's happened now is some story has leaked. Somebody has seen somebody somewhere. Somebody has seen something, and a report has now been written, or a journal, art, uh, an article in a newspaper has been written, based on scanty information, based on information that is going to rile up the fans, rile up the players, because we don't have enough information regarding this. Mm. So, just coming back, what we're doing here is we're hypothesizing this whole concept of South Africa's move, uh, big move to the north. Um, I think the one point there that you you mentioned now that we can put to bed is the Rusty Erasmus becoming England's head coach. Originally, we were told he signed a six-year contract. It has now subsequently came out due to the backlash and the contract being too long or whatever. He's actually only signed a four-year contract. But with everything that he has done over the, the last two years, it is very likely he will extend his contract for another two years as director of rugby, going past the Lions and taking the Springboks to the, the next World Cup. Yeah. That's not dismissing that Jacques Ninova is the head Springbok coach. It's just saying that the director of rugby isn't going to go anywhere. No, and exactly. I, I would be very surprised at this stage if Rassi does go anywhere. No, I would be too. I think he's, bu- he's, he's building on something big at the moment. So to go to get up and go in the middle, um, and for the first time, he's actually got the buy-in of the South African rugby public. I mean, he he didn't really get the full buy-in at the Stormers. He at 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 the start when he ran the Moby unit, there was a bit of friction, so he never fully got the buy-in. But he's he's proven himself, and he's gotten that buy-in from the uh, from the South African rugby public and from SA Rugby as a whole. But yeah, I think we're going to move on to our hypothesis here. Right. Okay. So I think to uh, categorize and break down a, a hypothetical situation, I first looked at, uh, broke down four parts for tonight. So firstly is what would be the motivation to go north? What would the legislation involve with that? Logistically, how would that look like? And then fourth, what opportunities is it going to open up not just for us, but for world rugby and all. Interesting, having a look there in your notebook, I see you don't have money as a factor. I'm assuming that would come later in one of the other yeah, head- headings. Under motivation. Or money would form part of opportunities, I, I feel, in this way. I understand. Um, so I think if we run into to motivation firstly, now if we can look at Sanzar in its current form as a family, now we can almost picture that family as South Africa and Australia being in an abusive marriage with each other. And um, at this stage, it feels like South Africa is only staying together for the sake of the children. And in this case, the children are New Zealand, and we've got an adoptive child in the form of Argentina. I'll get to why I feel they're more of an adoptive child later on. Um, So South Africa and Australia, they don't want each other. Let's be blunt. The Australian broadcasters, they don't want us because of our... Um, the, the time the games take place in South Africa. Show me one Australian team that's happy to have won the Mandela plate. Or show me one Australian uh, supporter that's not complaining about getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning to watch the, 
the Reds lose to the Lions at Ellis Park. So, I mean, it, it's not a happy relationship. We are we staying together for the sake of New Zealand, where there's actual respect and a rivalry between the two nations. And, of course, Argentina and its joined now at a later stage. And this is an important relationship that we're not dismissing in this hypothesis. No, not at all. I mean, I think the, the, New, the South Africa-New Zealand relationship has got a, a it's it's got a place, but I'll get to it to the end why where I think this place is and why it's not at franchise level anymore. Um, okay, running into that legislation wise, um, now if we look at the current legislation, we are part of Zanzar. Zanzar runs Super Rugby and the Rugby Championship. Now leading Zanzar, and let's with, let's be honest, they've made some terrible decisions over the last ten years. Well, we can put that down again to John O'Neill from Australia, who, who, who completely single-handedly, in my opinion, ruined the Curry Cup due to the need of Australia not having a strong domestic competition. They, Ten years ago, they didn't have uh, an equivalent to the ITM Cup or the Curry Cup. They brought derbies in to uh, facilitate that, to, to almost create the conference trophy was supposed to be their Curry Cup or ITM Cup alternative. And all it did was it diluted Australian rugby even more because they didn't have the, the, the depth. And they had to bring in foreigners to fund the Rebels, to, to face the Rebels, to, to play in the Rebels no, team. They had a whole bunch of marquee players in the first few years. They had a bunch of New Zealanders. They had a Welshman. They had a Englishman. A Rus- a Englishman. They had a Russian, a, 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 an American. It was a... Mixed match, and I mean, okay. Subsequently, with the force being forced out, it's um, it's it's created more stability. But you know what? It's still it was it was never supposed to go down that route. Um, in the meanwhile, Australia has tried to to start their own domestic tournament in the shape of the NRC, but that's falling flat. It's they they had to bring in Fiji to to supplement that, and Fiji goes on and win the thing. I mean, that's not a good um. Uh, it's not a good advertisement for the domestic game in Australia. So <clears throat> on that point, getting back, Sanzar is currently um, governing both the Super Rugby and the Rugby Championship, where a move north would mean different deals. Why I say that is, so Six Nations is actually run by Six Nations Rugby Limited, situated in Dublin. Now, for our franchises not to be left out in the dark, and I'll mention this now because this is where an opportunity is going to come in again later, is that the Heineken Champions Cup and the Challenge Cup are both governed by the European Professional Club Rugby organization that's based in Switzerland. So it's two completely independent organizations running different competitions, which is completely different to our setup. So, so this is almost on a, a bit of a negative side, is that our director of rugby would need to negotiate two new deals, one for our franchises and one for the national team, um, which obviously seems to be working in the Northern Hemisphere, but not working in the Southern Hemisphere when you look at the way Sanzar handles um, handles the administration of the game currently. No, exactly. It's, it's As you say, it's going to create work for him. But there we are, feel our six franchises currently that we have. If we look at our, I call it our, our Super Rugby Pro 14 franchises, it will create the opportunity for them to get in private investors in South Africa and hunt as a pact, uh, as a pack, sorry, for a deal to either join the Heineken Cup as extra teams and, and 
even get four teams into the Heineken Cup and two into the Challenge Cup. I mean, the Heineken Cup used to be 24 teams. It's now down to 20. So what's going to hurt them to go back to 24 teams if it's going to be strong, um, if it's going to be strong quality opposition? It will also create an opportunity for our franchises to move more in a privatizing direction, which SA Rugby stated in 2016 they want us to do. And um, it will then create an opportunity for them to also try and maintain our quality players in South Africa, which is something we've all been complaining about the player drain. So it, will, it could create a lucrative deal separately from the Six Nations that could benefit us in the future. Good stuff. Next point. Logistics. Logistics. This is this uh, created a, a bit of a, a debate on Twitter I saw today. And the one thing I saw about it, it was, I want to almost say a narrow-mindedness in terms of the logistics of such a tournament. Um, we live in a modern society. We live in an era with, where it takes 10 hours to fly from one from one country to another country. So a team could fly out on, hypothetically speaking, a hypo, hypothetically speaking, inside of the hypothetical world we live in, a team could fly out on a Friday morning, land in London, play a game against England, fly out on Sunday, and Monday, Monday morning be back at home, resting, no jet lag, and they were away for 48 hours. They're still back with their families. They haven't been away for three, four weeks. You know, it to me it just it it just sounds possible. You know, it, it it's just I don't see a travel issue in the, in this matter. Well, you know what? It's funny for me as well because um, firstly, when I read all these uh, all, all these Twitter comments about travel being an issue, now for me it's quite interesting that when uh, the Pro Fourteen teams are traveling down to South Africa to come play a one-off game against the Cheetahs or the Kings and then fly back to, let's say, play in Dublin the week after that, travel's not an issue. Now, all of a sudden, when you want to fly in for one game and fly out, now now all of a sudden it's an issue. So what's the difference between the Pro 14 teams doing it and, exactly. not, and not complaining about logistics? I mean, if you look at... From, from what I've taken... And they have to do it two-week because it's a game against the Cheetahs and the Kings normally. Yeah. And um, and in some situations, if it's um, if, if if you in a different conference to the Cheetahs or the Kings, you might you only come in for one week and fly out. So what I've found is, or what I've heard is that the guys actually enjoy their time in South Africa. So I mean, why on the one end are we are, are they happy? It's not a, it's not a problem there, but all of a sudden flying in for a week in and a week out, it's now it's a problem. I mean, it's I, not even a week; it'll be yeah. literally three nights. Well, that's it, and. The other argument, or, or no, not an argument, but discussion I had with a, a Welsh fan um, early in the week on Twitter um, was, was also about fans attending the games. And I said, but you know what, from a South African point of view, if we look at it, and it can go both ways, due to our, the, the, the flights coming in and out, I can leave uh, my office in Centurion on a Friday afternoon catch a flight to Owatambu, um, to uh, London or Heathrow, go watch the game at Twickenham, fly back and actually still be home to cut the motor lawn on a Sunday afternoon. So for me, it, 
if you if you're going to take a trip from let's be honest you'll have a hangover and you likely won't be cutting the lawn but no, you'll be back course. in time to to consider it yeah you you can be back in time to make up an ex- or, excuse or for not the, doing it or yeah. catch the France Scot- uh, France Scotland game which is on the Sunday well exactly I mean so where is it different to what uh, supporters are doing now are you telling me that a a Welshman leaves doesn't he leaves Cardiff on a Friday afternoon for the game in France on a Saturday. He comes back on the Sunday. Where's the difference between having an overnight flight um, of, of, to, from, uh, it's from jo- Joburg to London than having a ferry from the UK to France or to Rome? There's no real difference. So for me, the argument is falling flat there in terms of logistics. However, the one point I did pick up, and this is where a lot of the player unions are concerned about is the the current window. Yes, that's a that's a uh, that's a, here we it's we, we see it as a negative. However, we have got a I would say a gentleman's agreement. A gentleman's agreement as a possible solution. Yeah, and we've based the solution on World Cups are played over seven weeks. Exactly, or seven games in seven yeah. weeks. And we're talking roughly. Yeah. So hit us with uh, with the, the solution to this conundrum. Okay. So basically the problem that came in from uh, from the players' organization was that um, they complained about – so currently they complained about having an extra game during one of their bye weeks. So currently the setup is you've got seven weeks for the Six Nations to take place with five rounds. Now, adding South Africa would equate to seven games over six rounds. Now, their big concern was whoever gets the bye first is going to play six consecutive games. And as you mentioned, that's what you're going to have to do in a World Cup anyway. So, for me, I think a gentleman's agreement would be, I mean, South Africa would be coming off our, we'd be coming from pre-season where the, 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 the European guys would be coming off their uh, club season. Why not? Why don't, doesn't South Africa just say, as a gentleman's agreement, we agree that we will take that first buy every single year, and we will play six consecutive games? Firstly, I don't, I can't see a problem for uh, from a South African fan point of view. Our players have been rest, would have been rested, they would have been prepared for that, and um, also, as you mentioned, if you're going to go and win a World Cup, you're not going to get a week off. Every year, and then you're going to have to play six consecutive weeks. So we'll just be conditioning our guys to be to actually be be able to accomplish that every four years. It would it should be a walk in the park if they've if they've drilled in that they're able to do that. Another thing that I'm busy thinking about here now that we've mentioned, South Africa would need to go on a three week tour. Yeah, I think ideally it would need to be like that. We'll so need to play three we games. Would, we'd have to play three games up north. Yeah, and then we get three home games. Yeah, where the northern union, uh, the team from the northern hemisphere would be literally fly in, yeah, play, fly out. Yeah. they would not. Need, they would not need a, an extended tour. Yeah, and um, I think even to accommodate them more on that, uh, it's a solution. It's a hypothetical that I'm going to um, ask you to put on your blog that I've already calculated. Why don't we uh, get the northern hemisphere guys to have their bye week? After playing in South Africa, now you fly out on the Sunday night. You still got another two weeks off before you play your next game. 
and it can be possible. I've done the calculations. I've done it. it I've got a hypothetical um, schedule that I'll give add on onto your uh, blog. It will be possible to do that, and it will accommodate everybody. Okay. Another point here with the the logistics. Um, if we look at the team, the rugby teams, one of the big teams that really struggles, and I say this with a lot of respect, is Scotland. Their player depth is totally different to that of Ireland, Wales, and specifically England. And in one of the articles I read, they were used as the example that six weeks on the six weeks on the trot, if they had a few injuries, it would decimate their team. I find that in the modern age extremely worrisome that that's the thinking. Because when you go to a World Cup, you need a squad of 31 players that you can interchange at any stage, be it a player being injured, suspended, last-minute injury, family issues. And if you don't have a squad of that of 31 players that can carry you for six weeks, you can't, you, you can't expect your fans to support you to a trophy because you already don't believe you've got the player depth to win a trophy. You, you, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, well, that for me, they, their whole argument is falling flat because what if in the current situation, um, in the current after two rounds of the Six Nations, and they had a lot, they had the same amount of injuries. Let's say they had about seven or eight in, top players being injured. They would be sitting for the with the same problem for the next. Um, four remaining rounds. Only difference is they'll probably have after two rounds they would have now that they they've got three games left now. Yes. Where it would have been four games under a the new model, but they would still be sitting with the same problem. So for me, in the same time, frame, I, don't, I don't believe in in the modern era of professional rugby. I don't think the, to use the excuse we don't have the player depth to sustain a six week uh, run of games is. Is is an is a, a fighting argument, and for me, this it says what are their World Cup aspir aspirations ever going to be? Because if they're going to play a Tier One nation in the group stage, get hit with a few key in, uh, injuries, they're never going to be able to go on and and even make a final or win the final. If that's the the if that's their thinking towards this. I must admit, we really ripping Scotland a new one here. The last week we ripped them a new one. Today we like okay. laying into them. I actually enjoy Scottish rugby. It's very, it's, it's an attractive, it's a great brand. No, it's the, a fantastic the, the, brand. The, the, fight, the, the, the uh, it's always a fighting loss or a brave loss. You know, it just, it, it, we're just happening to be using them as an example. We're not, I we're think, not yeah. really digging at them because we don't like them. We're just, it's just so happens that they're, they're the example we currently yeah. use. I think let's use it as a disclaimer. It's not the Scottish rugby players that we have that that we ripping on one or having an issue with. It's a Scottish administration that opens up their mouths in the media and rips themselves a new one every single yeah, time. Exactly. Okay. Right. And opportunities. Yes. So here we've got a, a lot of opportunities. Firstly, that we can look at. Um, firstly, as I already mentioned, our franchises has the opportunities to join the Champions Cup, which I feel would be fantastic for our for, for our game. And um, only problem there is that. That will mean the end of Darwin's, what we currently have in Super Rugby. Now, where I see the solution there is, why don't we just revive the Curry Cup to its former glory? Use our Curry Cup for these Derby games. 
I mean, it 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 was it worked for how many years? The stadiums were packed. Fans had that um, tribalism that John Kerwin spoke about two years ago. Yeah. That he says was is, has been lacking in modern rugby. And here's another thing. Going back of uh, going back to the Zanzor under the legalization and the the legislation. Sorry, legislation. Zanzar will still exist, and the contract and Super Rugby will still be running over this period. It's not to say because the Springboks are playing in the Seven Nations that Super Rugby at the same time won't be happening. So you could still have a Bulls versus Stormers derby game, Lions versus Sharks derby game. It's it's only if we break away from Sanzar totally yeah. that we would need to negotiate now with um, the European side of things and the Pro 14 side of things to get our clubs in there. So, it, yeah, that's so uh, under opportunities, hypothetically, hypothetically speaking, there are many opportunities and many ways that we can ensure that we still play top quality teams. Uh, we're talking now at the provincial level where our provinces where our, our franchises are playing against either top quality European opposition or top quality uh, New Zealand Australian uh, Australian quality so from the on from the provincial level that the, the, there's many more doors that can be opened yes. that we need to investigate but we need to investigate these because um my big question is always, what is Super Rugby going to look like in 2024? The reason I say that is New Zealand, as New Zealand Rugby Unions already stated that they're in financial difficulties. This was created from the central contracting model. They Which are South Africans have been praising for years. Yeah, and now it's come out that they are in financial difficulties. I mean, their provincial teams are... In are in such financial difficulties at the moment. I look at an example I saw um, early in the week, uh, the Bay of Plenty. They are one of the oldest provincial teams in New Zealand. They were actually the first ever team to win the, the NPC or what's known today as the Mutual Ten Cup. So it's a, it's a province with strong history. They, for, to raise extra cash, they're going to compete in this global ra rapid rugby that uh, the force backers created. As the China Lions, they're going to be basing themselves out of Shanghai, playing in front of nobody, but just to survive. That's the type of measures they're going to have to go to. All right, Richard. One of the, if not the most prestigious international clash, derby game, is the Springboks versus the All Blacks. So divorcing ourselves from Zanzar and the Rugby Championship would rob South Africans and New Zealanders of this annual clash, home and away. However, finishing a Seven Nations tournament in March, April, May, June, July, the rugby championship, where it would normally start, opens up a window for an opportunity for a new venture. Yes. Tell us about the concept that you and I have been discussing. So, yeah, so I think what one thing you mentioned there was the prestige that a South African New Zealand fixture has. Now, when I looked at this, I thought that you, I compared it to other sports. 
And um, one of the best ones I came across was cricket. So in cricket, the biggest rivalry is the Ashes. Is the Ashes played every single year? No. It's a biannual tournament. No, it's played every every two years. Okay. So it will they they will play in England now, and then in two years' time play in Australia, and then in two years go back to England. So it works on that continual rotating basis. So we've already got the Freedom Cup that's being competed by South Africa and New Zealand. Now, my th- idea was there, or my thought was, why don't we turn the Freedom Cup into a three-test series that gets played every second year? So let's say, say for instance, 2024 played in South Africa, 2026 it gets played in New Zealand, 2028 they're back in South Africa with a World Cup and Alliance Tour in between that. And that leaves 2025 and 2027 for tours from Argentina or Australia yeah. alternating and uh, for uh, uh, the French maybe coming down for a three-match tour, a bit of a mix and a match. Yes. So there I think the idea is if you actually look at it in three weeks, you have a big touring party, you have three midweek games, three tests, uh, winner takes all, you get the Freedom Cup for the next uh, two years, we'll come and win it or defend it on your turf in the following following, uh, two years. For me, that just makes more sense in terms of a, a rivalry. I mean, it's been working so well for cricket for as for over a century, I mean, um, for me, from a revenue point of view, I for me, I can just picture three test matches every two years with three midweek games actually just bringing in that much more revenue for both parties than what a, a, a single test match in each country every year does. A good old school tour. And all those traditionists who are kicking and screaming that they don't want to lose something, they'll be getting we'll it be back. Bring, we will be bringing back a tradition yes. that was. Uh, the pinnacle and the height of rugby in the amateur era. Well, it, exactly. And imagine this. Uh, let's use an hypothetical example. Sia Kulisi go, goes on um, to become the first captain in 2023 to lift the consecutive, okay, the first black South African. Or first black first South African. Yeah, to lift two consecutive World Cups. After that, he goes on and competes in the Six Nations. Let's say they win their first ever Seven Nations with the Grand Slam. To top off his career, a Freedom Cup against the All Blacks, three test matches. I mean, I, ca- I can't see anything bigger than that um, actually taking place. That's the biggest rivalry. We need to revive that. I mean, sometimes it feels like the current test matches are, are losing their luster. That's correct. And bringing it back, we'll just bring back that rivalry. Richard, in conclusion... We broke down this hypothesis into motivation, legislation, logistics, and opportunities. There's plenty of motivation for South Africa to break away from the Zanzo product, moving north and looking at new opportunities. Yes, legislative-wise, there's going to be a lot of new contracting and negotiating that needs to be take place. And maybe even a push towards something we didn't even mention, a global season. Maybe South Africa setting themselves up for a global season. We can look at that in a later podcast. Logistically-wise, it isn't. A, it isn't, really isn't a chain, tra- chain smash. Train smash. Um, and opportunities. The, it just opens 
it just opens the door to bring back traditional rivalries. Uh, it opens the doors for um, the chance to to create new rivalries under a new competition. Well, that's exactly what I, I was thinking because, okay, we've got the England-South Africa rivalry is quite a, a strong one. I mean, if you look at it, they've just played in the last World Cup final against each other. I mean, that's it's 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 still a big rivalry that goes back many many years over the past few years we've had the island south africa rivalry that's become quite strong with the with irish rugby on the rise wales that's been having so many wins over us over the last few years it's created a bit of a rivalry that one as well so i mean there, there there's been rivalries created with between us and those northern counterparts and they're not going to be losing them i mean the the Millennium Trophy between Ireland and Wales will still be there. The Kolkata Cup will still be there. The um, the, the Lansdowne Trophy would still be there. It's not like they're going to be losing any of this. They're just going to be incorporating uh, rivalries that's been built up as well. And it gives us an opportunity to create a new challenge with our major rivals, New Zealand, and with the creation of an Ashes-type series, which we're calling, which we're dubbing the Freedom Cup. Yeah. It will be played every two years and played uh, and played either home and away. So I don't think we, we should boot this concept of South Africa moving north into touch. I think it's something that our, the governing body should entertain and really put some real thought into it. So the day, when the day comes that they present this to the public, it is sound and it leaves the game in a better place than what it is currently now. And that's not to say the game's in a bad place now. It's just saying that they must improve on what the product is. No, I agree with you. We need to look at improving the product and not moving, like I said, I feel like in the South with Super Rugby, we've been moving sideways the past t uh, decade. And we really need to start making decisions actually for the better of our game, um, especially in the South. Uh, in South Africa as well, We've, um, I think New Zealand actually needs, from from the sound of it, that they they need some improvements or, or decisions to go their way as well. Which I think a series like this would definitely help them, and it would also create a pathway for them to have their top guys playing in Japan without any commitments to being in South Africa, which will help them to keep their game alive. Because for me, uh, a breakup of Zanzibar would only be to the to, to the benefit of both South Africa and New Zealand. And Argentina, there are different opportunities which we haven't even discussed, which I can mention in the next part, which I think that it's on their, on their doorstep. They just don't know it yet. Um, Australia, they're battling with league. And the, until, uh, until Australia sort out their administration, we, I don't want to even hypothetically or factually discuss what's no. going on there because whatever the, they decide is, is, is just... No, every decision they've made in the last three years has taken them two steps back each time. Yes, and I mean in the week, uh, basically this week as well, we had a, a, a thing, an article where the the television companies are actually holding the ARU ransom. We can't, we we can't have this. We need to move in a solid direction forward. Richard, thank you very much. Thank you for having me at the stoop once again. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Next week, Richard and I will be breaking down the box kick.
This episode was researched and hosted by Andre and Richard. Rugby Deconstructed, hosted on Anchor. Available on Google Podcast, Apple and Spotify. Music supplied by Anchor. Cover art by Andre. Produced by My Rugby Posts. This is a self-funded pod for the love of the game.